Dear Heavenly Father, thank you this morning, Father, for the chance to return to your study this morning, to uh, come back to the Word and hear, as you spoke to this prophet years ago, things that we can still understand and relate to today. Uh, We thank you, Father, that in your wisdom over the centuries, you have brought your Word to bear against those who would teach falsely and have proven yourself true when everyone else was false, Father. We thank you for that, that we can rely on your Word, we can stand on it, and that it will be true forever. And, Father, we want to know what's in this Word so that we can live according to it, so that we might be a representative for you in this world that needs to know these things. And so, Father, even as we understand what Ezekiel said and what was done to the people of his day, Father, we pray you'd help us understand what we are to say for the people of our time. And you'll prepare us to this Word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after three weeks off from the study of Ezekiel, we're going to come back into now where we left off in chapter 13. This is... The chapter where the Lord is preparing to deal judgment against the false teachers who were deceiving Israel. But as you remember, this is also a part of a series inside this book where we are looking at the eight excuses that Israel offered for why they would not repent or why they would not listen to the word of the prophet. And we had come to this point last time, about verse 10, where we found the third of these eight excuses. And as we remember, verse 10 is a bit obscure. It's a little hard to see the excuse. For this morning's sake, I'm going to back up to reread verse 10, and then we'll move forward a couple of verses in the text. So we'll start in Ezekiel 13, verse 10. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So... Tell those who plastered over with whitewash that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, O hailstones, will fall, and a violent wind will break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, where is the plaster with which you plastered it? So as you may remember, that third excuse was prophets declaring that the future of Jerusalem would be one of peace when, in reality, what was coming for the city would not be peace at all. Instead, the city would see the fulfillment of all the disasters that the Lord had been promising through the prophets, the true prophets, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And as the people heard the reports of the false prophets and also the reports of those who were true, they chose to believe the report of the false prophets. And that's the third excuse. The third excuse is claiming that Ezekiel's word had been superseded by other so-called prophets. That though he was predicting woe and Jeremiah in Jerusalem was predicting woe, now there were new prophets, ones who were predicting peace. And so they preferred, the people in Jerusalem preferred, to think that God had somehow revised his prediction. He had issued an update that what he had said through Ezekiel and Jeremiah was no longer true. It was all just a false alarm. So faced with a positive report or a negative report, they chose to believe the positive. They chose the path of believing the false prophets, even though it would have been evident by now that those false prophets had a track record of making mistake after mistake, that these men had always said things and none of them had ever come true. But they ignored that. Meanwhile, they also overlooked the fact that the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah in Jerusalem were coming true routinely. And so it's willful ignorance, it's selective attention. It's just an excuse for rebellion. So in the second half of verse 10, the Lord describes the work of these false teachers as being like someone who plasters over a wall with whitewash. And if you remember from our last time in this chapter, this is a metaphor that the Lord is using to describe what happens when false prophets do their thing, when they go out speaking lies. And in the metaphor, the wall that's being set up represents Ezekiel's prophecies concerning what will happen 
to the defenses of Jerusalem. He said, this wall, the city's walls are going to fall because they're uh, containing a corrupt, rebellious people inside the city. And these walls are going to be knocked down by the Babylonian army. What the false prophets did, though, is they came alongside Ezekiel and they lied to make the people feel better. They told them, oh, no, no, those walls aren't going to fall. Those walls are going to stand. And those lies are being compared to the work that a man does to whitewash or to plaster over a crumbling wall. Whitewashing is the effect of taking something that is true but unpreferable, you know, something that is not what we want to hear, and covering it over with something we rather hear, making the future look better than it truly was. But, of course, underneath all of that whitewashing, the truth remains unchanged. The wall is still crumbling. It's still destined to fall. This is the classic way false prophets work. They almost never start with something brand new. They want to appeal to the mind of the believer, to those who are of God, by referring to something that will be in your memory, something you may have heard from the Word of God, some teaching you may remember. And so they start with something that is of God, and then they go a step further and they coat over it with lies. They change it, add things to it, they modify it. They take it in a place it wasn't intended to go, so they can say something it wasn't intended to say, so that it can serve some purpose of their own. They whitewash it, so to speak. They take something that is, at least in its beginnings, recognizable, and they turn it into something that is completely unrecognizable to anyone who is a student of Scripture. They prey on the ignorant and on the immature by tickling ears. Someone who truly understands their Bible will be prepared to see whitewash for what it is. And the false prophets are depending on either the ignorance or the immaturity of a person of God, if they're going to ply their trade, if they're going to have any success in influencing people, they depend on ignorance. They have to be able to tell you that the Bible says things like, God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible, right? In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite of that, that God helps those who recognize they can't help themselves. But when we say things like that, it's platitudes. It sounds so reasonable, right? And the world just repeats it like it's truthful. And then we sell a lie based on that ignorance, That's what false prophets do. You and I are only going to be prepared to spot what's false if we remain students of what is actually in the Bible. That's your antidote to false teaching. So God says because these false teachers were giving opportunity for Israel to use this excuse of claiming peace was going to be at hand when it wasn't, He says, I'm going to respond to this whitewashing that's going on among you. And in verse 11, the Lord tells Ezekiel, here's what you're going to tell these false prophets. You're going to tell them that the claim that they're making, that good things are coming, that claim, that prophecy, will itself fail. It will be seen to be false. And he uses, again, the metaphor of a whitewashed wall. The Lord says, I'm going to knock their wall down. I'm going to knock down their false prophecy. And I like to think of the metaphor somewhat literally at this point. If you imagine somebody trying to protect their home by putting up a sheetrock wall, anybody knows anything about construction, imagine somebody taking a couple of thin two-by-fours or less and just putting a little sheetrock on top of it and painting it over and then saying, that's my wall. How hard is it to bust through sheetrock? You know, you can punch your hand through it if you want to. And in a sense, that's what the Lord's describing. He's just building on his metaphor. He says, you false prophets have constructed this sheetrock wall of defense around the city, and I'm going to show you how easily I'm going to knock that thing down. And he compares the, the invading army of Nebuchadnezzar to the uh, images of flooding rain, hailstones, violent wind. And he uses these things because in their day and culture, this would have been very easy to understand. In the metaphor, those kinds of natural forces wreak havoc on poorly constructed walls. 
Water erodes the foundations. The hailstones would chip away at the plaster. The wind would knock over the wall. These things just illustrate that there won't be a lot of difficulty in showing the falseness for what it is. Because if they say the walls are going to hold and the city is going to be protected and it falls in the end, everyone's going to know them to be the liars they are. You can see the extent of the destruction when you look at what it says here in the text later on. It says that they were reduced to their foundations. The walls were reduced to their foundations. If you go to the book of Nehemiah, where you see the rebuilding of these walls several decades later, 70 years plus later, the effort that's required by Nehemiah to rebuild the wall makes it very clear that there was almost nothing there when he showed up. He reports in Nehemiah that the walls were completely gone, only foundation stones remaining, city gates were burned. So what Nebuchadnezzar's army did when he showed up was he made the wall nothing when he was done, which is a picture of what happens to the lies of these false prophets. When people tell us lies, they do so usually for personal gain, right? There's something in it for them. When we believe lies, it's for the same reason. Because they make us feel better about ourselves. They tell us what we want to hear. But truth always prevails in the end. Such that if you are willing to be sucked in by a lie that simply sounds good because it tickles your ears, you're only going to feel that much more foolish later when it's made evident to you and to everyone else that what you believed in wasn't true. The Lord says in verse 12, When that happens, the people of Israel are going to be asking these false prophets, Where did the plaster go? Which is to say, using the metaphor again, what happened to your prophecy? You said it wasn't going to happen. You said the walls were going to stand, the city isn't going to be defeated, and so on. And now the enemies just run right over us. What happened to your prophecy? Where's all that whitewash you were throwing up? Haven't you seen this response in our own day? The same kind of surprise when false prophecies aren't fulfilled? False teachers telling us lies, and then the world turns around after it's proven false and says, What happened? For example, the false prophet William Miller. Does that name ring any bells? He's the guy who started the Seventh-day Adventist religion. And he started it in the 19th century by claiming that Christ's second coming was going to happen in 1843. Okay, well then 1844 comes along, and his followers started asking, What happened? Where's the whitewash? Charles Russell. You know this name? He founded Jehovah's Witnesses, that religion. He claimed the kingdom of God would come to the earth in 1914. 1915 came along, and when that truth proved to be wrong, all his followers got uh, disillusioned, asked, where's the whitewash? And so they broke off, they formed a new movement. That new movement had a guy named Joseph Rutherford, who then repeated his predecessor's mistake. He claimed in 1920 that the Hebrew patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would all be resurrected in 1925, and that would mark the beginning of Christ's thousand-year reign on earth. Well, then 1926 came along, and all his followers are going, what's up? What happened? More recently, you've had people like Harold Camping predict the rapture. Remember that guy? He had all the billboards up back in, was it 2011, I think it was? You have Ronald Wineland predict Jesus' return. Two months ago, we had David Mead claiming our planet would collide with a mysterious planet called Nibiru, a non-existent planet, and that would set off Armageddon. By the way, the lady who claims the existence of this invisible planet says she received her messages from extraterrestrials from Zeta Reticuli star system who talked to her through an implant in her brain. I mean, it's easy to make fun of these people, but what's sad is how many people give any attention at all to this nonsense for even a day. And then, when they claim what they claim, and it comes and goes and never comes to pass, people are all disillusioned. What happened? You know, that Harold Camping thing was a particularly bad example. 
There were people who literally gave up all their fortune, all their possessions. They, they believed in the billboard that, that the rapture was going to come on a certain day. And then the next day comes and they're destitute. Where's the whitewash, they ask? This is not news, obviously. This is not something unique. Throughout history, false prophets come and they go. It's claiming to speak from Scripture, spreading lies, whitewashing over the truth. And every time those lies fail, people say, what happened? Which is a way of saying they are made increasingly cynical. Increasingly people doubt any claim about the future. Increasingly people wrap all religion up into one single ball of nonsense and they discredit the whole of it because lunatics walk around claiming things that aren't true. They are willing to believe anything but the Bible. And they're willing to take whatever they hear that pleases them and give no thought to investigating it against the truth of Scripture. And I'll tell you, the Lord loves to tear down these things because they compete with His true voice. He shows them to be the false things that they are. Consider what He says next to Israel in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I will tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its mist, and you will know that I am the Lord. So the Lord works to tear down false things, not for the mere pleasure of tearing down, obviously, but to ensure that His truth remains unchallenged, so that those who seek it in an honest and and heartfelt manner are not going to be pulled aside by things that are untrue. In the case of Jerusalem, false prophets said the wall would stand, and the more they said that, the more the Lord was determined to show them how wrong they were. And He tore them down all the more as a result. And He said He would also consume those false prophets in the process, and He did. The only solution to this nonsense that we just outlined is for God's children to stand on the sure and solid rock of God's Word. You have to know what he says in here if you don't want those who come around with lies to pull you aside. For example, you know if if you trust in the Word of God, if you understand what the Word of God says, then you'll know a lie immediately because it'll contrast with what you've heard in the Scriptures. That's what Ezekiel and Jeremiah were offering to Israel, and they ignored it in preference to things they preferred. But it wasn't like they didn't have an opportunity. It's not as though God didn't give them something true that they could have worked from. When you hear someone say that Armageddon is right around the corner, or that Jesus is coming back, or that some invisible planet is about to collide with your planet, all you have to know is what's in here to deal with those kinds of things. You don't have to evaluate them on their merits. Your first step is to evaluate them against the truth you've already received. We know the Bible says that the resurrection of the body of Christ, of the church which we commonly call the rapture, we know the Bible says that is coming on a certain day, on one day in the future. But we also know that the Bible says believers will not know that day in advance. It is not knowable. And therefore, anytime some lunatic tells you that they've got the date of the rapture, you know right away they are wrong. You see my point? You don't have to debate them. If they claim precision on a date that the Bible says cannot be known with precision... They are wrong. In fact, I think the Lord delights to make sure that's not the day. Wouldn't that make sense, right? They predict, if you want to make sure the rapture is not tomorrow, buy a billboard claiming it's tomorrow. I'm not sure if it actually works that way or not, but I'm pretty sure 
That's how it works. We also know that the Bible says the Lord's going to return one day to set up His kingdom on this earth, to judge and rule over the earth for a thousand years. But the Bible says that His return happens as part of a larger sequence of events, none of which have started to transpire yet, which would tell us He cannot return today. He cannot return tomorrow. Now remember, I'm not talking about His return for the church. I'm talking about His return physically to live on the earth and reign. So Armageddon cannot happen today. And it will not happen with a fake planet striking us from aliens in another galaxy. Okay, that part we can definitely rule out because that's not how it happens in the book. So again, any of these ridiculous prophecies can be rejected out of hand because we know what's in the Bible. It's, it, you know, it really is that simple, right? But you'd be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't be shocked, at how few Christians could explain any of those things I just described to you. How few Christians can actually explain the rapture what it's about, when it's supposed to occur, or what, under what circumstances, or what do we know about it? Or is Christ's second coming? Or the, the battle, as we commonly call Armageddon, that precedes the, the second coming? These things have become caricature in their culture. They've become Hollywood. They've become just phrases that are mocked, that nobody has any sense of what they really mean anymore. And because they've been tramped up by all of these lies, they're seen as being nonsense in and of themselves. Friends, that's not true, Right? I'll give you a simple political example that's probably going to create ire in the room, but I don't care because I'm leaving. <laughs> if, if you think our current president is a buffoon, I'm not asking you to confirm or deny. I'm just saying if you think that, it doesn't make the presidency invalid, does it? One person's occupancy of the role doesn't turn the whole thing into a, a joke, does it? Similarly, one person's false tale about the rapture or about... Armageddon doesn't make the concept false in itself or the reality of it any less believable. It just means you have to go back to the source to know what it really is about, right? That's all we're saying. These things are knowable in the right way if you'll pay attention to what God has provided. If Israel had listened to Ezekiel and he had listened to Jeremiah, they could have looked at the false prophets for what they were and said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. The main reason that the Bible calls Christians to study prophecy and to do it eagerly is to avoid this exact problem. It's to avoid being trapped by false teaching. In fact, there's only one book of the Bible that offers a blessing to the believer expressly for having read it, for nothing more than having read the book. And we all know which book that is, right? The book of Revelation. It's the only book in the Bible that blesses the student just for reading it. And how many Christians have never read it? Knowing what your Bible says is your insurance policy against being captivated by nonsense. If you believe in Christ and you look forward to new things to come one day, then you will give attention to what the Bible says concerning those things. And if you ignore prophecy, you're going to likely be tripped up by somebody sooner or later. And false prophets are good at what they do. They take something that sounds reasonable, they whitewash it, and they repackage it for their own purposes. And ignorant ears will buy it. So the Lord says, listen to His voice, just as Jesus declared when He talked about the sheep knowing the Master's voice and following the Good Shepherd. He does that to protect us. He delights to tear down the false things. And as some new false prophet comes to the foreground, as we know they will sooner or later, those lies will eventually be exposed too. But in the meantime, we're protected by our own understanding. So let's look what He does to these false prophets. Verse 15. He says, Thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is gone, and its plasterers are gone, along with the prophets of Israel who prophesied at Jerusalem, and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, 
declares the Lord God. Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands on all their wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every statue to hunt down lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? For handfuls of barley and fragments of bread you have profaned me to my people to put to death some who should not die and to keep others alive who should not live by lying to my people who listen to lies. So following the attack on the city, the wall and and the inhabitants of the city are going to be destroyed, as we know. Historically, we know that happened. Many of those who are false prophets will be killed in, in the process. The Lord says in verse 15, He is bringing His wrath in that way, on the wall and on those who lie to the people. And in verse 16, he says, it's those who give visions of peace when there is no peace. So he's talking again about these false prophets. I love the way he describes his wrath, though, in the course of this event. He says, God's wrath is that righteous anger directed against the sinful rebellion of his people and against those who were deceiving his people. He says he spent his wrath. That's the part I love, to spend his wrath. It gives you a good word picture for how sin works in relationship to God. As the ungodly do what they do, the Bible says they are literally storing up wrath for themselves with a holy and just God who will hold all accountable. So that tells us that no sin among those who are not covered by Christ's blood, no sin goes uncounted. No offense will escape repayment. Now sometimes the Lord spends, as he says, some of that stored up wrath against his enemies while they're still alive in this world, which is what you see happening in Jerusalem. In other cases, he foregoes bringing judgment against them now. They live their whole life in blissful ignorance of how their sin is storing up wrath for them on the day of their judgment. God may do one, or he may do the other. He's under no obligation to expose that stored wrath any sooner than he wishes. But in all cases, he brings justice in eternity. At some point, there is an accounting. And understanding how God's wrath works should only serve to increase our appreciation for the grace that you and I have received in Jesus Christ. Because each of us has a story that is just the same. Each of us could tell a story about our course in life up to the point where we came to understand Christ as Savior. And in the course of that story, you and I would both have a lot we could say about how we were storing up wrath. All of us would have our story. What we did as kids. What we did as teens. What we did as young people before we got married. All the various things we enjoyed in life. All the things that society says were perfectly fine. That people actually celebrated. And yet we know now, we were offending a holy and just God by what we did. And because God took all of that, I want you to imagine all that sin that each of us contributed, piling up wrath, piling up wrath. God took all of that stored up wrath in a day, and He placed it on His sinless Son. Instead of putting it on us, and a man who did no wrong took the weight of all of that wrath on the cross. That's what the gospel tells us. God spent his wrath on Christ instead of on you and for me, and he did so for no reason except his love for us and his mercy toward us. Not because we deserved it, not because we're any better than anybody else, merely because of his grace. That's what the gospel says. The more you appreciate your sin, both what you had before Christ and, for that matter, even what you're creating now as we continue, unfortunately, to sin... All of that appreciation will make grace the more amazing. 
In fact, I'll tell people all the time, if you feel judgmentally inclined, that is, you feel like judging other people, whether in the, Christ, in the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ, you're only able to do that if you're not thinking well enough, if you're thinking too well of yourself. You cannot judge from, a, from an honest perspective of your own sin. The only time you'll ever feel free to judge somebody else is when you're thinking too well of yourself. The more you appreciate what had to happen to save you from your own sin, the less inclined you will be to think of somebody else's first. When we see God pouring out His wrath on these people, you need to understand that's what is holy and just and righteous and required. Justice is not getting off free when you're guilty. How do you feel when O.J. Simpson got off? You didn't feel like that was justice, right? I'm pretty sure most of us agree on that. Well, likewise, if God is perfect and just and never inclined to do the wrong thing, then you can't stand before Him one day and expect He's going to grade you on the curve. That's not how it works. He's going to hold everybody 100% accountable. So either you're going to take the wrath of God on yourself or you're going to let it rest on Christ. By salvation, by faith in Him, you have that opportunity. But if you don't choose that opportunity, you'll stand before Him one day with all that sin piled up on top of your own shoulders. And I wouldn't want to be you. And it's not because anybody's better than another person that we've received grace. It's grace by definition, unmerited favor, but it's available to all. The Lord has said to this people, I have a a stored up wrath that is required to be spent, and I'm going to spend a little of it on this wall and on those who've lied about it. Verse 17, the Lord moves to a specific condemnation. The rest of what I read is a departure from the first part. He's talking now about something very specific in the culture. Female prophets, who were operating as well, they were doing something different than the guys who were running around lying about the peace that was coming to the city. The women were doing something different than whitewashing. God does raise up women prophets, by the way, from time to time. Prophetesses, they might be called. They're very rare compared to men. God doesn't tend to do that as often among women, but they do exist. And as a result, there was also false versions of the same, false female prophets. And the Lord is condemning these false women prophets in a very unique way. In fact, there is no greater condemnation of a false female prophet in all the Bible than this little passage right here. So like men, you have the women running around, making things up, passing it off as if from God. He says these are women who came with their own inspiration. But what they did here that's even worse, that calls them out specifically, is they were working in cultic ways, using black magic, using sorcery to influence the people. And we know that because of the practices that are mentioned here. In verse 18, we're told that they sew cloth bands on their wrists and that they make full-length veils for themselves and for those they prophesy over. Those articles of clothing were uniquely associated with occultic or sorcery practices in the days of, of Ezekiel. They were intended to inspire awe and wonder in the people and to you know, provide some kind of mind control. We're not sure exactly how they worked, but we know they were part of the, the trade of witchcraft. So the Lord's disgust with these female false prophets comes from their association with satanic powers. Apparently they were operating in the city doing whatever they do, perhaps in conjunction with their male counterparts, we're not exactly sure. But whatever they were doing, they were causing a lot of destruction, a lot of damage to the, heart, to the people in the city. They practiced their divination, we're told, for a payment. But look what they're taking as payment. A handful of grain, of barley, a little bread, which only makes their crimes all the more detestable. Because of their lies, these evil people were allowing, it says, innocent people to die and evil people to live. Now, I don't know exactly what that involved. It could be imagined as something like the satanic practices we see elsewhere in the Bible or elsewhere today. Things like innocence dying in human sacrifice. 
Unfortunately, the record of Israel includes that practice at points in their history. Or that they perverted justice in some way, bringing a kind of secondary level of justice to the people where they decided who would live and who would die. And then on the other side, and how they promoted evil and kept evil people alive, they might have been celebrating depravity or giving cover to people who did it so that they protected them from the justice that others might bring. All of this for a meal of barley. It's like someone committing mass murder for a bag of potato chips. It's that kind of bizarre, unexplainable relationship. And at the end of verse 19, the Lord refers again to these prophecies as lies. Now, what's interesting about that, if you think about it for a moment, these women had some kind of real power. They're not magicians. It's not a sleight of hand. What they did had some degree of true supernatural power made possible by satanic forces, which means they probably had the ability to display signs or wonders, to make things happen in ways that cause people to, to look in awe, and assume they had real power from God. But at the end, what they said was still lies. That reminds you that even though somebody has supernatural power, or could at times, that doesn't mean they speak the truth. That doesn't guarantee that what they say is accurate. They could be using, and usually are using, a source of power that is evil, not of God. So what's our way to determine what truth is? You see, it hasn't changed. I'm not going to measure their power I'm not going to consider how many miracles they do. It's not being weighed in that way. I'm just going to go back to the fruit of what they teach. Does what they teach align with Scripture? Is the fruit of their life consistent with someone who is walking in the Spirit? If that's not true, if the fruit is not there, then the tree is bad. I don't care how magical the tree is. I don't care how many miracles the tree can do. I don't care how many people are healed by the tree. The enemy has power, at least as God permits, And that power can look very convincing. That's why the Lord says, don't rest on signs and wonders, rest on the Word of God. If what someone says contradicts Scripture or promotes sinfulness or excites the flesh, then it does not glorify God and it is not promoting holiness and it is not of God. And so the Lord pronounces His judgment. Let's finish in verse 20 through 23. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands by which you hunt lives there as birds. And I will tear them from your arms, and I will let them go, even those lives whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted, and you will know that I am the Lord. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood, when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life, well, therefore you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus you will know that I am the Lord." So he speaks of breaking off magic bands, and in so doing, freeing those who have been captivated by their lies and by their divination. And then he says, I'll tear off your veils by which you controlled the people and hunted them down as they opposed you. So apparently, these women were pretty dangerous, and they held great demonic power over the people. But here's the key. They weren't more powerful than God. When the time came, the Lord strips them of their power over the people and destroys their place of prominence. These women did far more than just lie to the people. He says in verse 22, They disheartened the righteous. That is, those who love the Lord and His Word would have seen the power that these women had and the way they controlled people. And it must have been terribly discouraging to see someone with so much power running rampant in the city just wrecking havoc on what is right. And what do you think they must have been saying to themselves, the righteous? Those who knew the Lord, those who followed Him in truth. I suspect they were saying some of the same things you read in the Psalms. How about Psalm 35? This is David who's being unfairly maligned and chased and hunted down by Saul. 
And while he's in the desert, he writes things like this. Malicious witnesses rise up, and they ask of me things I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my cloth was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters, whom I did not know, gathered together against me. They slandered me without a ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. And then he says this, and I think this is what all those who are righteous, who deal with the kind of power that the enemy can wield, here's what we all say at some point, verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my life from the lions. You know, for reasons only God knows, the enemy and those the enemy controls get the upper hand for a time both in historical terms for this world we live in, but also in our own lives. There will be times, there will be seasons, when the enemy gets an upper hand. And during those times, you're bound to be discouraged, much like you hear what's happening in Jerusalem. And you're going to wonder, why doesn't the Lord just deal with this? Because I know He can. Have you ever asked that? I know you can. Why haven't you? Because it's not for lack of ability. The issue is simply timing. The Lord has won the day in Christ. Satan's defeat is assured already. But like Jerusalem in this day, the Lord waits to reveal that victory for a day He is appointed. It's already been won in the heavenly. It's secure in your heart by faith. It's only a matter of now when God will win it on the earth. And He's got a timing for that, according to His plan. So the evil of this world doesn't dishearten you if you maintain eyes for eternity. Easier said than done, I know. But that's the solution. If you understand, as they say, At the end of the book, God wins. Uh, But in a more serious term, if you understand your life is hidden in Christ, the death of your body opens you to a life of glory. It does not bring you to your end. And if you understand that in the meantime, the things God lets the enemy have reign to do is just to test and temper you, to strengthen your character, to make you a more mature Christian in in the meantime, that mindset helps you see what's happening around you with spiritual eyes in a way that defeats discouragement. The enemy has gained ground here or there. He's, he's got it for a time, but he's not going to hold it. And when the day comes, the Lord will break that stronghold. And even in your individual life, he can do that. He can break a stronghold that the enemy has obtained. He can break habits and vices and weaknesses when the day is right. But he may leave them there for a while as a test, as an opportunity for you to grow in your character. So these women, it says, were defeating or discouraging the unbelievers or the believers of the city. And then secondly, the Lord says these women gave encouragement to the ungodly to go on sinning with impunity. They encouraged evil. They gave it protection from justice. They celebrated depravity. They celebrated the occult. And in that way, they turned the wicked away from repentance and from the sense of guilt that they should have had and instead gave them license to sin all the more. That's one of the most destructive elements of sin in any culture. It's not just what it does on its own. It's what it encourages from itself. It's the replicating effect. The more that the world believes that doing evil is good, the more license they have to do it. And the more wrath is being stored up as a result. The same thing happens as evil people go around the world today, especially those who are under demonic forces. They push our culture to become increasingly evil. Again, not to dive into political hotbeds of discussion, I don't intend to, but you don't have to hear me say it. You know in your mind already the kinds of cultural issues today 
where the world is pushing not just for acceptance, but beyond acceptance, they want celebration. And they want all to equally celebrate what they prefer. It doesn't have, it's no longer simply a matter of being allowed. Now it's about being encouraged. That's the nature of sin. That's best seen in the garden. You have Adam and you have woman. Woman takes from the fruit, she sins in what she does, but she's not content to leave it there, is she? There's an instinctive draw for her to share what she has participated in with the only other human being that existed at that time. So it's the nature of sin to share itself with other people. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that, that sin and death spread to all men, like a disease spreading. That's what we see in the world today. This situation is not an end. It's just a stop along the path to the end, just as it was in Jerusalem. One day, the Lord strips the enemy and his people of power. One day, he rescues his people. We're going to see that prophesied later in the book of Ezekiel when Israel's glory is being spoken of. But here again, it's happening in our day too, individually. People come to know faith in Christ. That's going to move them away from the enemy's stronghold and into a life of glory. Knowing your Bible is key. If you understand how God works through evil in the world, then you can remain patient when you see it in your own walk. You can await the victory. You can echo David's words because I didn't read you the end of his psalm. Let me read you how he ends that psalm. He doesn't end in despair. Verse 26, he says, Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice those who favor my vindication. Let them say continually, The Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of His servant. And my tongue shall declare your righteousness and your praise all day long. David understood what was happening. He he understood that, as we said at the end of the book, Jesus wins. He knew that whatever he was facing was temporary. He knew his enemy wasn't going to prevail. God is always winning. It just doesn't always look that way to us. Nevertheless, because you've read the whole book, you can see it. That's why I keep coming back to that theme this morning. The more you know about what's in this book, the less a lie can get into your heart, the less discouragement can take hold, the less you worry about who's winning today or tomorrow. There's that old famous saying that said, every day I wake up, I read the Bible and the newspaper so I can know what both sides are up to. That's essentially the way we think about the world, right? We think of this cosmic battle taking place every day in which the Lord and the world is battling and we're trying to figure out who's winning. You don't need to figure it out. He wins. But he leaves it as a contest, if you will, for a time. Not a real contest. Not, not as though he's challenged it in, in any way. But he leaves it as appearing to be a contest for a time. Because in that back and forth, we're challenged. We're grown. We're given opportunity to learn and to become more Christ-like in our response to the world we live in. Eventually, the Lord breaks through the walls like he did in Jerusalem. Eventually, he destroys the false voices including those in our day. But the voices that were saved in Jerusalem's day were those who heeded the counsel of the righteous in the city. That's where we need to be today for our city. We are as if in the city with a crumbling wall around it, knowing that the judgment day is coming. And we're filled with people who are teaching each other lies and feeling emboldened to sin in the face of a coming judgment. The one they don't even realize is coming because they've chosen to believe the stories of peace rather than the Bible's teaching that there is a day of accounting coming. We, who have already escaped the wrath of God by our faith, are in the best position to tell those others that they too can escape in the way we did. And if we share that truth with them, some will. Some will want to know what we know. Some will want to believe what we see as truth and they'll see it for themselves. 
That's our goal. Our goal is not to stop the walls from crumbling. Our goal is to save as many people as we can out of the destruction. Let's make that our goal. Dear Father, help us to see the opportunities around us every day. Men and women, deceived by the enemy, convinced that life will go on unending, unaware, Father, of what is soon to take place. And whether the end comes because you return or because the world or because they themselves go to the grave, Father, either way, they come to their accounting moment. That was us as well, Father. We were on that path. None of us saved ourselves. None of us were smart enough or good enough. All of us, Father, were brought into this faith by your grace, having been saved, Father, by the work of Christ on the cross to take the penalty that we deserved. And, Father, if you could save a wretch like me, Father, you could save anyone. We pray, Lord, that in these days, as we see the world coming to its appointed end, whether that be years or decades or longer, nonetheless, Father, it's coming. Give us a sense of urgency to reach those who need to hear this message, Father, whose lives can be turned upside down the way you did ours, and help us see, Father, the truth that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, but you've put that anger on your Son for our sake. And if we accept it, Father, we may be counted as children of God, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and seated in the heavenlies, Father, to be a child who inherits the kingdom with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's be a a voice to the world with that truth, Father. Send us out, Father, with that message and with the courage to share it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.